There was a story told of a king who placed a heavy stone in the road and then hid and watched to see who would remove it. Men of various classes and kinds worked around it as they came across it, some loudly blaming the king for not keeping the highways clear, but none really taking the responsibility to get the stone out of the way. At last, a a poor peasant came along who was carrying all of his vegetables that he was planning to sell in the market, and, and as he contemplated this stone, he laid down his load, he rolled the stone away, Then turning around, he saw a large bag of money underneath of the stone. He opened it, and he saw all of these gold pieces with a note from the king saying, it was for the one who removed the stone. Perhaps this morning you come with seemingly large hindrances in the ways of your life, in the many roads of your life. Perhaps this morning you come with mountains that seem unmovable, Problems that seem to separate you from God. Perhaps this morning you come with hindrances that are keeping you from growing in Christ. On our time this morning, we want to consider some of these hindrances that we face in prayer. Hindrances to prayer. And my hope is is that by removing these hindrances, we will see the great treasures that God has for us in our prayers. We've been journeying through the Gospel of Mark over the last year or so, and uh, we have been considering really two things, who Jesus is and, well, what it looks like to follow him. We are, if you will, to situate ourselves in the final act of Mark's Gospel. Uh, The final days of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ is, is coming to the end. We are in the last week, the last week of Jesus' life here on earth. What we have really relatively moved quickly through the first three years of Jesus' life, Mark has in his uh, compiling and giving us this narrative slowed down, if you will, to a slow-paced view of these final days to emphasize the, the reason Jesus came wasn't just merely to do good things and teach us good lessons, but so that he would die for the sins of all those who would repent of their sins and trust in Christ. And so this morning, we are going to think about more in this story. Last week, uh, if you're kind of jumping in with us this week, last week we considered what is probably a very uh, familiar passage, which is the triumphal entry. If you've ever been to church before around Easter time, uh, that Sunday before Easter is Palm Sunday, you know, where we get those silly palms out and wave them around, right? As if that makes us more spiritual, I guess. I don't know. Um, and so uh, that's, that's what we looked at last week. And what we considered uh, last week was really just two events. You know, Jesus cursing a fig tree, which just seemed weird. And Jesus kind of taking his anger out on a, on a poor, helpless tree. And then we considered Jesus' cleansing of the temple, where he went in uh, there and was tossing over uh, tables and, and throwing chairs around. And it was a radical scene, and all of it was to show us and to demonstrate two things. One, that Jesus has authority to judge. Jesus is a king, and this is his kingdom that he's entering there in Jerusalem. And to show us that God was judging the nation of Israel 
for their rejection and unrepentant sin. And so we considered some of those things last week. And what we're doing is kind of picking up on the next day in the story. Okay, so that was Monday. Uh, so, so this is kind of back up. Sunday, triumphal entry. Monday, Jesus goes crazy in the temple. Tuesday, after some perhaps some rests, uh, you know, those disciples had to get themselves under control. I'm sure it was a very uh, nerve-wracking experience. They thought maybe perhaps they were going to die that day. Uh, they've recovered, and they're coming back into Jerusalem. So, so basically what's happening is each night the disciples and Jesus are, are leaving Jerusalem, traveling a few miles outside of the city to the suburbs of Bethany. And they're spending the night there at uh, most likely Lazarus's place. Uh, and they're hanging out with him and going back into the city each day. And so we're at Tuesday, and that's where we pick up the narrative this morning. So I invite you to turn this morning to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11 and verse 20. Mark chapter 11 and verse 20. There's pew Bibles there in front of you. Grab one of those, page 847 in the pew Bible. Um, if you're um, not familiar with looking at God's Word, the large numbers are the chapter numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Um, and we are in chapter 11, verse 20 this morning. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, you are free to take that one. Um, if that one is not in great condition and you want a better one, see me after the service and we would love to give you something to uh, read God's word with. Verse 20, and they, that is Jesus and the disciples, passed by in the morning. Uh, they saw the fig tree withered away at its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you have cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also, who is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses. We're going to consider this morning how to remove hindrances to our prayer. How to remove hindrances from our prayer. And one of the things I often like to give you is just sort of what does this passage mean? Uh, what is the point, if you will, of this passage? And really I think you could be summarized in this way, that Christians demonstrate their faith in God through regular times of prayer where they rest in God's power alone to deliver them from difficulty and provide for them all they need for life and godliness. I'll say that again. Christians demonstrate their faith in God. So Jesus exhorts them to have faith. Christians demonstrate their faith in God through regular times of prayer where they rest in God's power alone to deliver them from difficulty and to provide for them all the things we need or they need for life and godliness. So we're going to consider this morning that proposition in really three ways. We're going to consider three hindrances to prayer. So if you take notes, there's three points. Shocking. Uh, three hindrances to prayer. First hindrance is our silence or your silence in prayer or your lack of prayer. 
The second hindrance in prayer is your doubt or unwillingness to rest in the power and provisions of God. And third and finally, we'll consider the hindrance of an unforgiving heart. An unforgiving heart. Let's consider first here in this story that silence in prayer or a lack of prayer, prayerlessness, is a hindrance to prayer. Notice with me first in verse 22. Jesus tells his disciples to have faith in God. Jesus here is connecting the story of the cursed fig tree with their trust in God. You may know, kind of think about this on the surface. It really doesn't seem like it has much cohesion. It doesn't seem as if really what does prayer have to do anything with a withered up old fig tree? What Jesus is doing here, and, and I think despite what the, the translators of the ESV try to do here in labeling this lessons from the withered fig tree, I think rather what Jesus is doing is taking something uh, that he's done and providing sort of a secondary application in the lives of God's people. So primary application of the withered fig tree is this is a picture of God's judgment on the nation of Israel. Okay, we considered that last week. So secondary, sort of, so under that secondary, Jesus takes and says, look, this is sort of a, let me, let's talk about prayer now. Let's talk about faith. Let's talk about these things. So what Jesus is doing is saying, look, you see the faithlessness, the, the doubt there down there in Jerusalem? We, we saw that yesterday, he said. And now what I want you to do is, is, is think about what faith really looks like. And it looks like you praying to God. It looks like you crying out to God in prayer. Notice what Jesus says throughout this passage. Over and over again is implied that, that Jesus' disciples will be praying. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain. Jesus is giving us an illustration of what he means by prayer. Notice in verse 23 later in the verse, he says, but, but believes that what he says will come to pass. And then again in verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer. And again in verse 25, and whenever you stand praying. All throughout that passage, we see implied that God's people pray. That God's people are about the business of praying. That we actually open our mouth to God. So one of the things I want you to see is that prayer fundamentally is a verbal activity. It's vocal. It's not something merely that's silent. Sort of just sort of in the quiet of your heart, you think. No, what we see here, all of these verbs, all of Jesus' instructions here is a verbal activity. Words are spoken out loud. Now, I don't mean to say that you can't pray silently. That's not my point. But, but what we want to see fundamentally is that prayer is a visible and a vocal dependence upon God for all things. That's what we want to see. We want to see that prayer is what God's people regularly do. So prayer isn't something that is like, you know, for super Christians. Prayer isn't something that's like, you know, like when you get your training wheels off, you can move on to prayer. No, we see that prayer is, is essential. It, it, it's like the basics. It's the beginning. We start and we end with prayer. And so one of the things we confess is that often in, in sinful self-reliance, we don't pray. 
Have you ever considered why we often will go throughout the day and not pray? Oh, 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 oh brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I, I face that temptation too. Okay. Um, often I, I, I'll be, you know, a few hours into my day and just be struck with conviction. Man, I've been doing everything in my own power this morning. I have not called out to my God in prayer. I have not spent time with him today. And so one of the things we want to see implied here is that, that we don't pray because we think we've got it. Uh, the reason why we are not sort of propelled to pray or, or, or really convicted to pray is we think we're in control. We, we, we think that we have a handle on our lives. And that's why when things, you know, sort of, when the wheels fall off and things really begin to crash, why we pray, right? Because we, God just sort of, in his kindness, lets us fail. Do you ever figure that God lets you fail as a gift to remind you of your need to pray? Oh, he's often done that to me. Well, I'm often asked the question about God's sovereignty, and I'm sure if we were to go around the room and think, think about God's sovereignty, everyone in here would be like, oh, yes, I believe God is sovereign. I believe in a sovereign God. We sing about our sovereign God. We celebrate it almost as a sort of a rite of passage. And, but when we sort of press in a little bit on that, well, what do you mean by God is sovereign? And so often I'll be asked, you know, do you think God is sovereign? I said, well, sure, I do. So long as you allow me to define what God's sovereignty looks like, and so often I'll press a little bit on that. I'll say, um, well, I believe God is sovereign, meaning the Bible teaches us that God's in control of everything. Every atom that moves, moves by God's sovereign purposes. There is nothing outside of God's control. Uh, no president or dictator. Uh, no army. No people whom God is not in control of. That God does not have sovereign purposes in their life. Everything good and everything bad in our lives is our gifts from a sovereign God. Nothing happens in my life, in your life, that God has not purposed, that God has not planned by a sovereign hand. So with that definition, I will say, yes, I believe in a sovereign God. But why do I mention God's sovereignty? What does that have anything to do with prayer? Well, in fact, it has everything to do with prayer. Why? Would we pray to a God who's not in control? We've been considering in Mark's gospel that Jesus is a sovereign Lord, that he's a king, that he's in control. Why would we cry out to Jesus in prayer if we did not believe God could do anything about it? Shouldn't we rather ask the person who can do something about it? Should we go to that person and ask him? Whoever he may be, do we learn to pray more as we think about who God is? You see, our understanding of who God is informs our prayer life. And the reason why we don't pray is not only because of our sin of self-reliance, but because of our, our view of God, of who we think God is. We think God's little, and we see our problems bigger than God. Ed Welch wrote a great book called When God is Big and People, When God is Small and People Are Big. And what he's dealing with there is the fear of man, but I think the point is applicable to really everything in life when it comes to prayer. We don't pray because we don't think God is big. We don't pray because we don't think God is in control, that God can do anything. 
Brothers and sisters, we pray little because we think God is little. And so, one of the remedies to prayerlessness is informing who we think about or how we think about God. If we think God is small, well, then our problems will be big and we won't pray about them. But if we think God is big and our problems are small, well, then we'll take them to a big God to deal with them. Because only He can. Because He's big enough and bigger. Well, this really leads us then to our really the second point in this passage, which is uh, the hindrance to prayer is our doubt. Our doubt specifically in God's willingness, power, and provisions in prayer. But God is a God who's willing to provide for us, a God who's powerful and able to provide, and a God who freely, through his providence, provides. Look with me in verse 22 again. God, excuse me, Jesus says, have faith in God. Now, this is a very fancy little thing I'm about to say, but what this is is an objective uh, genitive. Ooh, wow. What that means is that Jesus tells us to put our the object of our faith in God. So who is the object of our faith? It's God. So Jesus is saying the object that you need to lay hold of, the, the person whom you need to grasp hold of, is God. So implied in this is that God is able and willing to provide everything we need in life. So just consider what we've seen in the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Jesus is demonstrating this power of God over things, over religious powers. Just consider how traumatic these would have been for the disciples. I mean, just how messed up they probably were that night. I mean, I would have been shaking. I mean, if you've ever been around a violent situation, I mean, tables were being flipped over. Chairs were flying through the air. People were running. God had descended in judgment upon the people. And I would have been shaking there in my boots. And I perhaps will you, so would you. This was an amazing experience. And it was in the midst of this, this traumatic experience that Jesus comes and says, Look, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of tragedy, have faith in God. Put your trust in Him. Depend on Him. Well, how often do we trust in the ever-changing circumstances of our life? The Bible regularly uses the, the time change, right? Like today, tonight, what's gonna, what are we, we going to feel tonight? At about 4 o'clock, we're going to be feeling it, right? As the sun's going down and we begin to weep at the darkness, right? The, the change of seasons, the, the lengthening of the shadows are a reminder that the world is changing around us. And sometimes that can be disorienting. Sometimes that can cause us to feel like we're on shaky ground. And, and I think and I believe that that is all a part of God's providence for us to trust in Him. To not find our reliance on the changing world around us, but to find our dependence in Him for all things. The Bible tells us that God is not like the changing shadow is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is consistent. So what does it mean to have faith in God? It means to trust God. It means to rely on God. It means to depend upon God. Just as much as I'm trusting this stage to keep me from falling on my face, so also we trust God that He will provide everything we need that we won't fall on our faces in life. 
But God has us and we depend upon him. Jesus shifts in his, from his exhortation to have faith in verse 23 to uh, a parable of sorts. A, a visible illustration of the faith they are to have in God. Look at verse 23. Look at what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Now, we don't have mountains around us where we can kind of point to today. But where Jesus and his disciples were, there were mountains. Perhaps the Mount of Olives, Mount Horeb. There was mountains all over in Israel that, that, that were seemingly impossible. Often, just this week, actually, uh, my wife and I, we went down to the Patapsco State Park. And, and one of the things that I always think about, I don't know why, I'm always thinking about how the fact that Union uh, and Confederate soldiers like moved around in this area, right? And I'm always fascinated by these large mountain ranges that they had to get over. And I'm just like, oh, can you imagine having to try to get over these mountains with all of your gear on, with all of your weapons, with carrying in carts, all of your equipment. It was just fascinating to me the, the kind of uh, strength they had in these unmovable mountains. And so Jesus is there saying, kind of pointing at these mountains around them and saying, look at these mountains. If you were to say to one of them, be thrown into the sea, it'll do it. They're like, what? Jesus, this is crazy. What do you mean? These mountains can't be moved. What Jesus is meaning here is for us to point to power of God. And Jesus does not mean here that we will literally be able to talk to mountains and move them. I know some have wrongly thought that, but that's not what Jesus is. He's clearly using hyperbole to illustrate God's power in prayer. Uh, he uses this hyperbole to demonstrate the power of God. This mountain that was large and immovable, a symbol that, 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 that of something that only God could move, right? Only God can move Mount St. Helens. Only God can move these, these great mountains around us. So only through prayer can we accomplish the impossible. It's only through prayer and through God's power working through prayer that we can accomplish these things. With God, size does not matter. He is bigger than all things. This is just why we sing in what a friend we have in Jesus. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Because we, uh, or what needless pain we bear, because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. That's why. Really, our prayerlessness reveals our, our sinful selfishness, our sinful self-reliance. At the very core, we think of ourselves as self-made men and women. We've got here today. Because of ourselves, because of our, our strength, because of our, our, our goodness and our, our, our ability to get through difficulty. And we often forget the many people who helped us get where we are today. Uh, the many times and the many places where we've not seen God's hand in our life, but oh, the sovereign God has been at work. He's provided, even when we couldn't see it. He's given gifts when, when really we didn't know it. And often we go to God with these sort of trinkets of life and kind of say, God, will you hear my prayers because I've done some good things this week? Will you, will you hear my prayers because, oh, friend, because, oh, 
I'm so good. No, no, rather in Christ and in His finished work is our only standing before God. We sin by doubting the power of God to answer prayer. And we need to confess that this morning. We need to be open with God and say, you know, often I doubt you in that. Jesus in this passage wants us to believe in an all-powerful God. A God who is sovereign over all things. A God who not only hears our prayers, but answers them. I mean, I say that so often to remind myself and you that God is not up there just kind of tallying our prayers with just the hope of one day doing something about them. Like if He could muster up enough strength to get one little prayer answered. Oh no, God has all access and all power to answer every prayer. Now in some ways He chooses not to answer our prayers, but God is still nonetheless in control. The question is, why would Jesus tell us to have faith in God if God was not able to give us everything we need? Surely that would be a fool's errand to trust in a God who was not in control. But we pray, we have faith in God. We trust Him. Let's consider some of the other passages the New Testament exhorts us to, this connection between prayer and faith. 1 Corinthians 13.2, Paul says, If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but not have love, I am nothing. There Paul is connecting faith and prayer together. Or James in first in James 1 5 says, If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without approach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Or consider what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and you will be opened to you. Or what Jesus says that those final verses in John 14, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And that day you will ask me for nothing. Truly I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give it to you. Jesus seemed to believe that when you pray, God responds. Jesus seems to believe that his disciples, when they offer prayers of faith or in faith, that God does something with those. That they don't fall on deaf ears. But God hears and answers. I just wonder if you're not a Christian this morning, have you felt the frustration of unanswered prayer? The Bible reminds us here, not only in this passage, but in others, that faith and prayer go together. If you have no faith in God, your prayers are not answered. And the prayer you need to offer is the prayer of faith in God and the trust in the finished work of Christ for saving you from your sins. And as Christians, we must trust God is willing and able to provide for us all we need. We as Christians must fight this hindrance to prayer so often in our lives. We need to fight it. How do we fight it? How do we deal with these obstacles, seemingly unmovable mountains that are in our lives? 
I'm sure this morning you've identified a few. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your children. Maybe, maybe it's a, a circumstance in your job. Maybe it's your joblessness or homelessness or, or some other thing in your life that's keeping you Friend, I just want to remind you that God puts us in immovable situations to demonstrate that He is an immovable God. That God can move mountains to demonstrate His power over all things. God can move the mountains of your life. God can move and curse trees. God doesn't need weed killer to kill a fig tree. He doesn't need bulldozers to move mountains. All He uses is words. Does that not display, show you God's ability? Jesus can say a word to a silly tree and it die. Within 24 hours, maybe perhaps you've cut down a tree in your yard before. Leave that little stump behind. That little sucker just keeps going, doesn't it? It just keeps going. It never gets away. Now with Jesus, he tells us that it was withered away to its roots. In less than 24 hours, it was gone down to the roots. That sucker was dead beyond dead. No picture of life. To demonstrate to us the power of God in prayer. God is able. So how will you begin to trust God this week in prayer? What will you do in your life? How, how will you set regular time aside? Say, you know what, I'm going to be intentional to pray. I'm going to set some time aside in my life. Perhaps if you have a long commute, use that time to pray. If you don't have that, use it. Find some other time. Set aside 15 minutes of your day. Un un uninterrupted time. Right? Turn the TV off. Get off of Facebook for five seconds. You know? Get off of you know, texting people. You know? Just set it aside. Turn off the phone. Whatever you need to do, spend time with God in prayer. As a husband, one of the ways, you know, I was just convicted this way as like, how could I lead my wife in this to maybe perhaps take my kids and so that she could have that uninterrupted time of prayer. Husbands, we have a responsibility to our spouses to do these things so that they have time in prayer. Brothers and sisters, how can we help exhort one another in prayer, encourage one another? It's simple as asking, how are you doing in your prayer life? And then be willing to say, Honestly, I haven't prayed it to God in about a month. Thank you for exposing my sin. I want to confess that, and I want to repent of that, and I want to pray today. It's so easy as that. Brothers and sisters, don't allow ourselves to harbor this sin. We've got to give ourselves to prayer. We've got to find it a regular time of our life. We, we can't just make prayer an appendage. Prayer in our own worship services is an appendage. I hope you feel the weight of that. I mean, we give ourselves over 20 minutes in praying every week. Because we believe that prayer is not just sort of something we kind of do to, you know, you know, check off a box. Because we're so utterly dependent upon it. We can't do anything without God hearing our prayers. This is what the church has believed for 2,000 years. That prayer and the preaching of God's word are the regular means God builds his people. They're not the irregular means. They are the regular means that God uses to build his people. Preaching and prayer. That's it. It's really that simple. The word of God and prayer are it. And so we give ourselves to these extraordinary things in ordinary means of prayer and God's word. 
So as a congregation, this means we want to spend more and more time in prayer. God exhorts us as a congregation to get together and pray. We see that in the first church in Acts 2, right? What did they do? They spent time in prayer. So one of the things we're going to do starting in January is having a, a once a month Sunday night where we're just going to get together to sing God's sing songs and to pray. Because we believe in the power of prayer as God's people gather together. Our prayers are hindered when we don't pray. Our prayers are hindered when we doubt God's power. And third and finally and very quickly, we our prayers are hindered from an unforgiving heart. Look with me in verse 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. There is a correlation between your prayer life and your unforgiving heart. And when we are in relationships which are unreconciled, they hinder our prayers. Believers are to show grace if someone has offended. Notice here, if you have something against someone. I want you to just notice here, as Christians, who goes to who? The offended or the offender? It's the offended. Isn't that what Jesus says here? If you have anything against anyone, if you've been offended by somebody, if someone has done something to hurt you, you're to go and harbor that and cry about that and whine about that and tell other people about your problems and bicker about it. No, they do what Jesus says is go deal with the problem. Forgive them. Christians are to have a posture of forgiveness. Christians are to ground our willingness then to forgive in Christ. We, we heard that in, in, in some of the songs today. We've, we know that from God's word. We're to forgive because of what we've been forgiven of. Look, we love to avoid conflict. <laughs> Let's be honest. If someone has done something to hurt us, you know, we take it personal and we get all, you know, shut down about it. And we don't want to talk about it. And we want to avoid, you know, conflict. We want to avoid reconciliation. You know, we want to avoid that conversation with the spouse because, you know, we just don't want to rock the boat. We just, you know, we just ignore the problem and we think it'll go away. But the Bible tells us that that kind of contention is cancer. It's like cancer in the church. Unreconciled relationships in a local church is cancer that will spread and ultimately kill the body. Unforgiving hearts in God's people will ultimately hinder our prayer and our relationship with others. So we avoid confronting sin because we don't want to hurt people. We don't want to think that you know, we're being judgmental. But, but God doesn't say any of that in this passage. He just says, look, if, if someone's done something to hurt you, go to them and forgive them. Seek reconciliation. So consider what Paul says in Ephesians 4. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Notice then the basis of our forgiveness is the fact we've received forgiveness of our sin. We have no excuse. Remember the disciple who came to Jesus? My brother does something against me, how many times should I forgive him? Jesus says, there's never really a reason why you shouldn't forgive. 
Jesus looks at him and says, really, really no context for that. You forgive every time. That's what Jesus says. Have you ever considered that your harboring of your hurt? Have you ever considered that your unreconciled relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ are hindering your prayers to God? That's what Jesus says here, isn't it? That when we don't forgive, it's not that God doesn't hear like he has earplugs in. But how should we think to receive anything from God when we are outside of the will of God? Right? If you are out of the will of God by not forgiving sin, because God is a God who forgives sin. We are people who forgive sin. So maybe this morning, if there's someone in your life who you need to seek reconciliation with, I just want to exhort you from this passage, from Jesus' words, forgive. Don't make excuses. This is why Jesus leads his disciples to pray in, in the Sermon on the Mount. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Oh, we love the Lord's Prayer, but we kind of like forget that part, right? As Christians, we have the responsibility and the privilege to be peacemakers. To, to seek reconciliation with those who have hurt us. Look, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash this and say, that, oh, it's just going to be a cakewalk. No, there's going to be, there, there's a, look, I've been hurt, you've been hurt. There's a lot of pain, a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of sorrow. You can still feel the scars from the knife that was stabbed and thrust in your back. You can, you can feel that. The embarrassing you know, words. You, 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 I'm not trying to diminish those things. Jesus isn't trying. But, but, but where you can look is to the wounds and the scars of Jesus on the cross for your sins. He was willing to forgive you. He was willing to be beaten for you. That he might give you forgiveness. Forgive others their trespasses, Jesus says. And your heavenly Father will forgive you yours. Brothers and sisters of the church, we must put a priority on reconciliation. As a congregation, we do not want to allow that cancer to spread. And we individually and corporately have the responsibility to be peacemakers, to seek reconciliation. If we know of two brothers or two sisters or a brother and sister that have relational conflict, we need to work towards reconciliation. We need to give ourselves to pray for reconciliation. We need to give our time and effort to see that we are at peace with one another and not allow the root of bitterness to grow up in us, but squash it and kill it. Friend, at the end of the day, we cannot pray properly if we have interpersonal problems. We often think our relationship with God is just merely individual. We often think that, you know, it's just about us and Jesus. It's just like we're coming here and we're having this little personal time with Jesus. But, but one of the things we want to see is that there is a corporate nature to our relationship with God. God has put us in a family a family of people, a messy relationships where, where we get hurt and where we're often vulnerable. But we want to see these relationships are vital to our relationship with God individually. Therefore, we need to pray frequently. As Christians, we need to pray receptively. 
We need to pray confidently. We need to pray expectantly and without discouragement. And we need to pray with a forgiving spirit. J.C. Ryle, let's conclude with this quote from J.C. Ryle. Meditating on this passage, he writes, Do we desire to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do we wish to make progress in our religion and become strong Christians and not mere babes in spiritual things? Then let us pray daily for more faith and watch our faith with most jealous watchfulness. Here is the cornerstone of our religion, he says. A flaw or weakness here will will affect the whole condition of our inner man. According to our faith will be the decree, degree of our peace, our hope, our joy, our decision in Christ's service, our boldness in confession, our strength in work, our peace and our patience in trial, our resignation in trouble, our sensible comfort in prayer. All, all, he says, will hinge on the proportion of our faith. And he concludes with this. Happy are they. Who, who know how to rest their whole weight continually on a covenant God and to walk by faith and not by sight. That's our prayer this morning. That we will not forfeit peace in our life. That we will not allow our lives to continue to be crushed by burdens. But we will take all things now and forever to God in prayer. Let's pray. Eternal God, all good and all powerful and all knowing, giver of all grace, unchangeable Father, we give you glory and praise. And Lord, we ask now in prayer that you would strengthen us in this. Give us faith in you. Open our lips, Father, that they may no longer stick to the roofs of our mouths, but they may utter your praises in prayer. We might demonstrate verbally our utter dependency upon you. That, Father, that you would give us strength by your Spirit to fight, fight against prayerlessness. To fight against doubt. And to fight against our unforgiving hearts. Father, may you bear fruit in our lives as we hear and heed your word. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.